Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. To come and share with us and for us to listen. But he, when he was around 25, somehow in this weird, unfortunate way, was forced to become the pastor of a church because everyone else collapsed. And um, so he took over the church and it wrecked him. And because it wrecked him, he realized what pastors were going through. It took him a while to recover from it. And so he has moved his life into a place where his job is to go and care for other pastors and other people in ministry. And um, I didn't realize how bad we needed that um, until I became a pastor. And I remember reading through some stats. I might have shared it with you guys before because I didn't realize how messed up this job was. <laughs> but the about 70, somewhere in the 70 percent, um, pastors would love to have another job if it was offered, and they would take it if it was offered, but they just keep their job as a pastor because it's the only job they have. Um, in the high 70s to low 80 percent, um, they say they have horrible marriages, uh, and this is the one that like woke me up and go, oh, I better go find some help because I don't want any of this stuff happening to me. Um, that about between the low 20s to the low 30s, somewhere in that range, um, pastors, this was two separate studies of over 1,500 pastors, said they either currently are or did have affairs with someone in their church. I was like, are you kidding me? How messed up are we? And so that's because they're alone, and, and they're messes, just like everybody else. And so I'm like, hey, Michael, how you doing? Um, and so I can tell you that none of those three right now fit for me or have. Um, but he's a good man who has made a lot of sacrifices to care for people. And so I want to pray for him and invite him up. And let's have ears to hear what the Lord would teach us. Father, um, we are fragile, fragile jars of clay. But you've given us this gift of carrying you, your Holy Spirit, inside of us. And as we've shared over the past few weeks, uh, you intend to use us to blow things up for your purposes. To create and be involved in the work that you do. So give us ears to hear. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Michael Bischoff. Amen. Thanks, folks. It's really awesome to be here today because every other time I've preached here, seven or eight times, Book hasn't been here. And uh, to have him here today and to give an introduction to me that's better than any introduction I could give for myself um, is really a privilege. So thanks, man. Um, yeah, we got to meet each other about two years ago just at a pastor's retreat together. And it's, it's seldom that you get to go to a retreat and become really good friends with somebody. And Boog and I just did become great friends. And, uh, and I got to be friends of branches because of being with all you guys. So anyway, thanks for letting me come back. Um, in the midst of this series, I thought, what could I say that I haven't said before? And usually I realize I've been trying to fit into series that you're doing 
and I've never really been able to share deeply what I do. Boog just gave a great introduction to what we do at Soul Leader. This is a ministry that started 16 years ago. Next month, we celebrate our 16th anniversary. It's called Soul Leader Resources. But there's a deep story behind all that, right? Our stories are sacred. Our stories are sacred. Your story is sacred. And what he shared, that church that wrecked me, it did. I went through eight months of clinical depression. I think I've shared a little bit of that with you here before. But it wrecked me in such a good way. But if something just wrecks you and then you're like cast aside and you've got nothing less left to give, that's not God's heart. So what I want to share is a little bit of what happened to me, but more how it translated into what now is my passion for other leaders and other churches and other followers of Jesus and really everybody in the whole world because God has a desire to take our lives, moving us from what I like to call fragmentation to wholeness. God wants us to be whole. Our souls are supposed to be whole, but they're not. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. We'll be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you've got one of those Bibles uh, that got passed out or you bring it up on your device, you might want to turn there. It's helpful, little detracts. Verses will be on the screen, but nonetheless, it's probably good to be able to look at them that way. So let me tell you a little story of why this is so important to me. Um, 1968, Olympic Games, Mexico City. The country of Tanzania sends John Stephen Akwari to run the marathon. The marathon is always a difficult race, no matter where you run it or how you run it or what's going on with it, right? 26.2 miles. Akwari goes to run that race. These are actual pictures. You can Google them and Google images and get them. They're not good quality because they didn't have great cameras way a long time ago like that. Um, so anyway, he runs the marathon race, and at some point he falls and is badly injured. He's bruised and bloodied. His leg is wrapped, as you can kind of see, but he was a mess. But he gets back up, and he keeps running. Everyone in the entire marathon finishes the race before he does. But the reporters wait around for him, thinking, what's up with this guy? Why doesn't he just bail? He can barely walk, let alone run, and finish the race which I think is an amazing story. So the reporters are all there. He runs into Olympic Stadium in Mexico City. The reporters rush up to him, and they say, John, why in the world didn't you just give up? Why did you finish this race? And he has this saying that has become a rather famous quote. He said, my country didn't send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Now, that could be a motto for our lives, right? You want to be able to finish the race that you are a part of so that you can finish well. And that's my heart, is to help leaders and pastors and churches and literally every follower of Jesus learn to finish well. You can do it. It's not easy. There are going to be trials. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be all kinds of arrows that are shot at you, but you can finish well. Here's another little story. So, um, when I was a, a youth pastor back in the day, I went out during lunch one day, and I had my oil changed in my car on my lunch break. And I came back, and the junior high pastor I worked with, whose name was Paul, he said, where were you at lunch? I said, I was getting my oil changed. And he goes, oil changed. He goes, how, how often are you supposed to do that in a car? I'm like, about every 3,000 miles is probably a good amount to do. And he just kind of scratched his head like, I don't remember if I've ever done that. So Paul had this really 
pretty hot-looking car at the time. It was a bright red Hyundai, but he had bought it when Hyundais had just started importing to America, so you could literally get like a Hyundai for like a thousand bucks or something, some ridiculous amount. They were so cheap. And he was going out on a date in high school, and it was a girl he was really trying to impress. So he thought, what should I do to impress her? He went out and bought a brand new car. He bought this red Hyundai to impress his date. And uh, they went out on a date, and nothing ever happened. I don't think they went out on another one, so that didn't work. But he's driving this car now quite a few years later. It's at least five, if not six years later that he's driving this car. So he's going oil change. I'm not sure what I should do. So the custodian came through our office at the time. He was a guy named Bill. And Bill loved to help people with stuff like car repair and stuff. So he goes, What's, what are you guys talking about? And we told him. And he goes, oh, I can check your oil. I'd be happy to change it for you. So we go down the parking lot. And Bill pulls out a little roller board, gets on it, goes underneath the car, unscrews the oil plug, pulls it. What do you think happened? Nothing. Dry as a bone. Now, the amazing part to me is this is a great advertisement for Hyundai um, because that car, now that's why they got that 100,000-mile warranty, I think. These cars are made really well. But nothing came out of that thing. Bill did put new oil in, and about a week later, the engine seized up, and the car was just dead, <laughs> completely gone. But I'll never forget that because he pulled that plug, and I translated that to a life and thought of it this way. What happens when you pull the plug of your life? If I could pull literally the oil, this sounds kind of weird. If I could pull the oil plug out of your life, would anything drain out? Our lives are meant to be full to overflowing with good things coming in all the time, right? Oil is the lifeblood of a car. What's the lifeblood that you need to keep your life going well? And if we were to pull the plug, when was the last time you got an oil change? How's it going for you with your soul would be another way to say that. In fact, that's kind of a good question. That's a good self-examination question for you at any point to ask yourself, how is my soul? Because we don't like to think about our soul too much, right? Our soul is like the operating system in a computer. You just want it to work. You don't want to pay attention to it. You don't want it to crash. You don't want it to blue screen. You just want it to work. Or to even ask a good friend or marriage spouse, family members, how is your soul? We need to pay attention to what's going on with our soul. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 4 and see what the Apostle Paul had to say about this whole area of our lives. I think 2 Corinthians, and I know Boog two weeks ago preached out of 2 Corinthians 12, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And if you weren't here, go on and listen to the podcast online uh, of that message. That was a message I was thinking of giving, but I listened to Boog's message and it was so good and so aligned with what I was going to say, I decided, nah, I'll save that for another time. Um, We think a lot alike. So this is in the same book, though, 2 Corinthians 4. And 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote that I think defines his philosophy of ministry. You've got to have an understanding of why you do what you do. So in a sense, this is a very pastoral letter, but it applies to all of us here as well, if you're a follower of Jesus, for sure. Here's what he says. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Can we just say that last phrase together? We do not lose heart. That's an important phrase. Hang on to that for a second. Because we've got this ministry, we all do. Some of us get paid for it right? Like maybe me and Boog and others. But most of us, we have this ministry that God has called us to. But it's hard. But God has mercy for us in the midst of it. And because of that mercy, Paul starts by saying, remember this, no matter how hard it gets, how bad it is, the statistics that Boog was sharing just a second ago, 
we do not lose heart. That's important to remember. Hang on to that. So he says, and we don't lose heart. What's up with that? Rather, in verse 2, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. Now, what you got to know a little background here is that there were leaders in the church at the time, way back then, it's tough now, it was tough then, who were making accusations against Paul, trying to accuse him of being something he was not. Okay? There were a lot of leaders that would go from church to church to church, and they would just milk people for their money. They were false teachers trying to lead them astray. They were trying to get as much money out of them as they could, all kinds of accusations, and leaders were accusing Paul of that very thing. So he says, you know what, guys? We're not doing anything in secret. There's no secret or shameful ways here. We're not using deception. We do not distort the word of God, and that's easy to do if you're a teacher. Those of you that teach know, you could take it and twist it, try to make it say what you want it to say. On the contrary... By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You know what he's saying? You know me. Here's my life. My life is open to you. Please speak into it because, you know what, I, I, I couldn't have a clear conscience if you didn't speak into my life. He's being vulnerable. He's being real. He's being honest. That's what's required. So important to understand. goes on in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled... It's difficult to understand, right? The gospel, everybody doesn't get it. Sometimes it's a mystery. Even Jesus would tell the disciples a story, and he'd be like, the kingdom of God is like, and he'd tell them, and they'd go away going, what the heck did he just say? It's hard to understand. It is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We know that. When you have friends and family that don't know God, some of you might be on a journey and you don't have a relationship with God right now and you're trying to figure out, is this thing for me? You need to think deeply about how what the Bible calls the gospel, which is really you can be part of the kingdom of God today, okay? That's available to you right now. Can you line your life up with that? Is that something you want to line your life up with? It's a little bit confusing sometimes to think about, but that's where Paul's headed with this, okay? And then he goes on in verse 5. For what we preach is not ourselves, right? I could come up here this morning and just talk about myself, and I could probably make you laugh, and I could tell you great stories, but it wouldn't hold much value for your soul. It really wouldn't. But what did he preach? Jesus Christ as Lord. We have someone who we can follow. Jesus Christ as Lord. And ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. There's some beautiful words here. Let me read that second verse one more time. Because often when they start using deep language, we tend to tune out. We don't talk like this today. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Are you feeling that? Darkness exists all around us. There is light that can make that change. Made his light shine in our hearts. Do you feel God's light shining in your heart if you're a follower of Jesus? To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And whenever you see the word knowledge, I think I've said this here before, it's not head knowledge. We think of knowledge as like more facts. No, knowledge means interactive relationship with God. So in other words, when you wake up tomorrow morning, do you start your day all on your own, all by yourself? Or do you basically go, God, you are walking with me into every single circumstance as part of my life? That's what knowledge is. It's being able to walk with God in every aspect of your life. 
But then we get to verse 7, and here's a key verse that I want us to spend a little time on. But we have this treasure. What treasure? All those good things that Paul just said in the first six verses, okay? All of those things about the gospel and the knowledge and the interactive relationship with God. We have this treasure in what? Jars of clay. Some translations say clay pots. Some say earthen vessels. Now, something you need to know, like back in that time, if you had some valuable stuff, one of the ways you might hide it would be in a clay pot. Uh, they didn't have safes back then, so you had to figure out how do you outsmart the burglars. So it's kind of like today when you go down to the beach, right, and you got, oh, my God, my keys, I got my wallet. I know. I'll put it in my shoe. They'll never find it there, right? I'll hide it in my shoe because i got to go out surfing, and hopefully the bad guys won't find my treasure in my shoe, right? So this is a little bit like clay pots, okay? You would put something valuable in something that's very unvaluable, right? Because maybe, just maybe they won't look there. We have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So I started thinking about that a little bit, and I thought, this is an interesting, it's not by accident. In fact, nothing in the Bible is by accident. That's the beauty of the Bible. That's why it's the best-selling book of all time. That's why it's so filled with amazing wisdom. But I started thinking, so we have this treasure, and it's in a clay pot. So what's a pot for? It's meant to not just be a pot. I mean, I wouldn't buy this and go stick it in my house and say, man, what a beautiful pot. You know, that's a nice pot. People come over, Michael, where'd you get that pot? I want one of those. Where'd you get that? No. A a pot is meant to hold something, right? Usually you fill it with dirt, and then you put something in the dirt. It might be seeds. It might be a plant. But nonetheless, it's meant to hold life, something that will grow, right? The pot is just the vessel that is meant to contain something that grows, something that then is beautiful. So if someone came over and I put an amazing plant in here, they'd go, oh, that's a beautiful plant that you've got. And it looks so healthy. It's growing so well, right? They would look at the plant and its growth and its life, its beauty. They would not look at the pot. So I started to think about that for a second and go, wow, this is a lot like our life. What a great analogy that the Bible chose to describe our life, that our life is like this pot, okay? In and of itself, maybe not a lot there, but it's meant to hold amazing treasure that is meant to grow and have fruit and impact others. Are you tracking with me so far? So then I started to think, well, if this is an analogy of our life, this pot, then what happens when all the stresses and pressures and worries and trials come in and intersect with my life? And I thought, well, maybe that's like, if we were to work with an analogy, life would be a little more like this, right? Life's like a hammer that just comes at us. And then I started to realize what happens when a hammer comes and intersects with the clay pot. That's life, right? But if only that was like life for it to happen one time. That's not my life. How about yours? This is more like mine. Now does that feel like your life a little bit more? Many of us. I asked my sweet wife, Darlene, also known as Carol Merrill, to come up and help me put these pieces back together. Branches, you need to get some more sturdy tables around here. (laughs) 
I really should wear goggles doing this, but. Thanks, hon. So, do you get it? What else, now it's a little hard to see, but what do I have left? A mess, shards, fragments. One of my mentors, Dallas Willard, um, I heard him say once, when I look at people's lives today, 21st century, he said, all I realize that people have left are fragments. Our lives are so fragmented, and you can see why. Our lives are a mess. They're broken. And then you realize relationships, it's like, man, it's hard to be in a relationship with people. Because here's me right here. And here's a person, here's my friend over here. And what happens when my life rubs up against my friend's life? Can you feel it? If I were to take that and put it in my skin, you could easily cut yourself. Fragments are sharp. They're sharp. We cut each other. That happens in relationships all the time, right? Now I know why. Because we're broken people with sharp edges and we hurt each other. And I might not mean to, but when I rub up against you and you rub up against me and it's my brokenness up against your brokenness, my fragment versus your fragment, it makes it really, really tough. All we have left is fragments. Can you put this back together? It'd be interesting to try, wouldn't it? That's the assignment. I've got some crazy glue. Everybody's going to come up and you're going to try to put this back together. That'd be really hard to do. One of the things I'd like you to do, the reason I made so many fragments is if you want to remember this, maybe come up after the service and grab, grab one of these. Take it with you. Um, as a little analogy, to think about your life and what it means for the fragments of your life to feel everything that they've experienced in terms of pain and suffering and hardships, but it's not gonna stop there. But this will be a good reminder, okay? So if you wanna come up afterwards or during the prayer time or during worship even and grab one of these fragments, that might be a good thing to do. Maybe help you remember a little bit more. Paul goes on in verse eight, and this describes the hammer. We are hard pressed on every side, but what? But not crushed. Perplexed, this is confusing, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, that's starting to feel a little bit better, right? There's some hope in this, because while we can all relate to the hammer, and some of us way more than others, what that hammer does in our lives, there's hope. There's amazing hope, huge hope. Verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. That's a message we usually only talk about on Good Friday. Crucifixion, death. Jesus died and experienced more pain. His hammer was bigger than any hammer any of us will ever experience. But it's not without purpose, right? Because the life of Jesus can now be revealed in our body because of what Jesus did. I love that verse. And then it keeps getting better. Skip to verse 16. In verse 16, Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. You seen that before? Verse one, 
Remember where we started? He started this whole little section by saying, we do not lose heart. Verse 16, he comes back and says, we do not lose heart. They're like bookends. And whenever you see that in the Bible, you see things repeated, there's repetition, always pay attention. If you see something repeated, there's a reason for that. And usually in this case, with bookends, you want to go, everything in the middle is now highlighted by what was at the ends. We do not lose heart. Can you say that with me together? We do not lose heart. That's the message in the midst of no matter how hard it gets in your life, no matter how hard the struggles, no matter how much fragmentation, no matter what kind of mess that your life is, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Why? How? Paul, how are you supposed to do that? Though outwardly we are wasting away. Do you believe that? Can you relate to that verse? If you can't, take out a mirror, everybody, and look down at your hands, okay? Look at some of the wrinkles. Look at the person sitting next to you. You can see we are wasting away, some of us more than others. And depending how much we've invested in things like makeup or surgeries or things like that, we can try to slow it down, but you cannot prevent it. We are all wasting away. Yet, and this is the beautiful part, right? Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. That's your soul. If you don't pay attention to your soul, I think it kind of wastes away with the rest of your body. You do pay attention to your soul, and the beautiful thing is while your external body can be wasting away, your internal soul will be flourishing, growing, thriving. And honestly, you can tell somebody whose soul is thriving because they're the ones that look in the mirror and they're like, you know what? doesn't matter what my body's doing because my soul is good. My soul is good. But when your soul's not doing good, then the external becomes even more important. That's hard for me, too. I struggle with that. You know, growing older can be a really challenge, can be a challenge. How's your soul doing? And then he finishes up here in the last couple of verses. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Puts it in perspective, doesn't it? So, what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Can't see so much of what's going on in kingdom reality. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's the goodness of what's going on in your soul. This, what we can see, fragments. What we can't see is your soul that's flourishing and growing and meant to give good life. How do you check to the degree that you might be flourishing and thriving or you might be languishing and dying, okay? How is your plant in the pot? How can you check some of those things? Let me give you a few just to pay attention to, okay? One would be, look at your life and see, do you got diminished capacities in your life, right? Are you juggling too many things? You can't do as much as you used to. You're depressed, you're frustrated, you're struggling, you've got anxiety. Life just seems to be crazy. A huge part of this is hurry sickness, okay? I think I talked about this a little bit here, maybe one of the first times I was here, but you can check your own hurry sickness, okay? To see, are you so busy, are you so overloaded that you've got too much on your plate? How do you know if you've got hurry sickness? You can check it a couple different ways, right? You can go to the store, and you're standing in line at the store, and do you choose the longest line or the shortest line? If your soul's doing well, you'll choose the sh longest line because you have more time to pray for all the people around you that are sitting there in line, okay? 
Seriously, this is a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual discipline of line waiting, okay? But if your soul's not doing so well, you're like, I'm in a hurry, got to get to the next thing, I'm going to choose the shortest line. I get in line, but if you really have hurry sickness, this is what you do. You pay attention to the other line that's next to you that you might have got in, and then you keep track to see where you are versus the person that's over there, okay? And if you get to the line first, you're like, yes, I feel so good about my day. And if they get into the line first, you're like, oh, my day's a failure, you're relating to that, right? You can't tell that. You get in your car, you're on your way home, you get up to a light, and the lanes have three lanes, two cars in one lane, uh, two, two, car, car, and then an open lane. Which lane do you get in? The open one. There's a right answer to this story, right? What if all the lanes are blocked? Then you look at the car, and you see which is the fastest car, most horsepower, biggest engine. And if you don't know, you look at the driver. You see gray head, don't get in that one. <laughs> You've got hurry sickness. Little sad things. Can you relate to that a little bit? We are so hurried. We're so busy. Our capacities are so diminished that we just don't have much to give. When you've got a full soul, you've got something left to give, but you've got to pay attention to your soul. Here's another one, compassion fatigue. That's when you get to the place where you are in, maybe in such a hurry or you're so distracted that you just have no compassion or little compassion for people around you. For me, this was a check mark when I was at some place and a person going in the door was in a wheelchair. And I found myself coming up behind the wheelchair and I felt like saying, come on, can you just push it a little faster? Can you get out of the way? And then I found myself, oh man, I'm doing that to a person in a wheelchair. Michael Hartcheck, what's going on in you? There's like no compassion in me. That's when I know I'm on overload I'm not doing well, and I have not paid attention to my soul when I don't have compassion for people around me. When you get a phone call and someone needs to talk, and you're kind of like, well, I guess I got some time, but you're really struggling, you've probably got compassion fatigue. But can you go, when someone has need, yeah, I'm here for you. Doesn't matter, I'm gonna put everything else aside. I've got a lot to give. That's a little soul check to see how things are going in your soul. Make sense? Here's one last one. Just the absence of flourishing. Like I said at the beginning, we're meant to have growth come out of our life. Goodness, growth, newness, okay? And you've got to be able to pay attention. Is there fruit coming out? Uh, is, are you fl flourishing is a word that's being used in psychology settings now. In fact, it came out of strengths-based psychology, which some of you might be familiar with. There's been a huge shift over the years from an emphasis on pathology and very negative things within psychology to an actual sense of where is their goodness? Where is their strength? Where is their positive happiness? Where are you flourishing? So rather than always trying to fix problems, figure out what brings goodness and flourishing in your life and then focus on that. If you can't look at your life and say, I'm flourishing at least in this area. I think I'm doing really well in at least one area. Probably need to do a soul check, okay? We're never perfect. We're never flourishing in every area. But can you think of at least one that things are going well? If not, I'd encourage you to tell someone. Talk to someone. Even afterwards, there's going to be a time of prayer afterwards over here during the last worship. You can go and pray with someone and say, you know what? I'm just feeling a little bit more like this. And I don't feel like I'm flourishing a really good thing to be able to talk to someone about that and allow them to talk to you and pray for you and support you. That's what church is about. Church is a place where we come together with all our sharp edges and all our fragments and we come together to help each other flourish in the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. 
It's soul leader, we try to do that in six different areas. So just because I'm describing the kind of things we do with leaders and people, I just thought I'd put this up there. We help people with their spiritual formation, their relationship with God or their heart. We help people at the bottom, their emotional formation, their feelings and what's going on inside. Their relational formation, your friendships. You got someone walking on the journey with you. Your mental formation, your mind and what's on your mind and are you replacing toxic thinking with healthy thinking. Your physical formation, your body. That was the very first sermon I got to give here at Branches. We talked about the body. And if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it online. Your missional formation, your will. Are your, is your life living the good news? And when you pay attention to all those, kind of like gauges on a dashboard, you can move toward wholeness. It says the whole leader, but really that's the whole person, right? That's what it means to move from fragmentation to a place of wholeness when you're paying attention to all the dimensions that make up your soul. And those are the ways that our soul is made up. So some of you might be feeling like, Man, Michael, that's kind of depressing, um, thinking about my life that way. So I didn't want to end on a depressing note. So let me just end with a story that's, I think, more encouraging. The story takes the issue of fragments and kind of puts a different light on it. And it's a story about a, a, a class that was taught on the island of Crete. It was a two-week class in philosophy and ethics taught by a professor named Dr. Alexander Papadaris. And Dr. Papadaris would teach this two-week intensive course every summer on the island of Crete. And Robert Fulgham tells this story in one of the books that he wrote. He was a former pastor and then became an author. And Fulgham took the class. He was sitting in the back of the room, and this is the way he tells it. He said at the end of this very deep class on, on uh, philosophy and ethics and those kinds of things, the class was coming to a very end. The professor went over to the window overlooking the Cretan countryside. He waved his arm to the class and he said, any final questions? And Fulgham, who's a little bit of a smart Alex, sitting in the back row, raises his hand. Professor says, yeah, what's your last question? Final question. He said, what's the meaning of life? And the class just collectively went, oh, we're done. We're about to get out. And you ask this now? And Papadaris quieted the class down. He says, no, 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 let me, let me answer that question for you. He says, um, I grew up here on the island of Crete, and during World War II, me and some of my friends were out on a hill playing one day, and Nazi soldiers came in on their motorcycles into our village and started a little battle with the men of the village. And as boys, we watched that, kind of with fascination, but with incredible fear at the same time, hoping they didn't see us. But they were up at the top of a hill, watching behind some bushes, hoping that they wouldn't be seen. They watched that battle take place. And when everything was done, he said, and the dust had all cleared, me and some of my friends snuck down to see if we could find a little souvenir from the battle that had just taken place right there. And he goes, there wasn't a lot there, but we did find something. One of the Nazi motorcycles had fallen over and crashed, and the side view mirror had broken. And he goes, I took a piece of that glass. And he goes, I picked it up, and I realized as a young boy, you can do things with a piece of glass. Now, at that point in the classroom, as he's telling this story, he reaches into his wallet, he pulls out his wallet, reaches in, pulls out a little piece of mirror that had been honed down around the edges. He goes, this is that piece of glass that I found all those years ago. And he goes, I realized that you could do some amazing things with a, with a mirror like that. You could shine light into previously dark places, right? And at that point, he's standing by the window, and he takes the sunlight on the, the mirror, and the sunlight hits the mirror and shines right into Fulgham's face. And he goes, to me, this has become the meaning of life. He said, I am not the source of the light. 
I am not the light. I am merely a broken mirror fragment that can shine light into dark places. And everybody understood that's the meaning of life. A broken mirror fragment can reflect. And really, our lives might be fragmented. You might feel a lot of brokenness. But I like to think of us, rather than just a broken pot, as a broken mirror fragment that through the midst of our fragmented, broken life, we can still reflect the light of God's life into the places that God wants us to reflect that into. Let's pray. God, thank you for a chance to just be able to reflect on the difficulties that we face, the challenges and the struggles that we face, but that with you, because of your mercy, we have this treasure in clay pots. God, as we look at our own lives, help us not to think through too greatly about our lives, yet at the same time to know you can use us to plant life in that will grow and flourish and produce much fruit, that you can reflect off of our lives, and it's literally because of our brokenness that we can impact other people's lives as well. I pray that you'd help us to do that. And God, for those of us that might want to spend some more time being prayed for, I pray that you'd allow us to, in the midst of these closing times in worship, to even go outside to a little prayer area and be prayed for. How awesome would that be? To even make a decision today that we want the fragmented aspects of our life to be used by you in deeper ways. Help us not to beat ourselves up. Help us to give ourselves a lot of grace. We need your grace, Lord. Thanks for being the amazing, grace-giving God. In Jesus' name, amen.